So chapter 13 is a tough chapter, and I've been wrestling with it all week. Intrinsically simple, and yet it's hard in a way because almost as soon as Israel gets a new king, God fires him. Now that's hard. His kingdom won't last because he can't obey God. He can't obey God because he doesn't believe God. Saul is afraid that God is going to let him die. And in order to believe God, you have to trust him with your life. So I'm reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So you notice this first verse here. It's going to be different in your translations, depending on what you have. And the reason for that is that evidently certain numbers have dropped out. Because it's a difficult sentence, and it's probably one of the biggest textual problems in the Old Testament. But here's what we know for sure about Saul's reign. In Acts 13, verse 21, Paul says that Saul ruled for 40 years. So this whole thing about one year and two years is sort of a, a formula that is used in the Bible when a king reigns. He was so and so old when he started ruling, and he ruled for X number of years. What we know about Saul is, like I said, he ruled for about 40 years, and he also had a son, that's Jonathan, and at the beginning of his reign, this son was old enough to command a troop of a thousand soldiers, so he wasn't a kid, and Saul wasn't a kid when he came to the kingdom. So... That's really all I want to say about that. It doesn't really affect what we're looking at this morning. So we're just going to leave it there, okay? The main issue is that Jonathan and Saul start a war with the Philistines because Saul had 2,000 men, Jonathan had 1,000. And in verse 3, he attacks the garrison of the Philistines that's in Geba, all right? 
And the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blows the trumpet and lets people know. He says, let the Hebrews hear. And that's kind of interesting because the name Hebrew wasn't kind of a name that the Israelites called themselves. And there's some question about where did that name come from? In fact, not until Greek and Roman times did that name properly apply to the Jews. And it seemed to be a derogatory name, a name that other nations would call Israel, but they wouldn't refer to themselves like that. Um, and what they've noticed is that it was used to describe people without power and without prestige. And if you look at everybody who used that name, they were in that position. Like Joseph said, I'm a Hebrew. And that would apply to him. He had no power and no prestige there in prison. Now, some people think that Saul is saying to those Israelites who even served under the Philistines is, hey, you guys without power and prestige, we're coming for you. We're going to be fighting for you. We're going to throw off the yoke of the Philistines. And so in verse 4, In verse 4, the Philistines literally think Israel stinks. That's what it means to become an abomination. Other translations have odious. That's a great word for saying it stinks. And so Philistines cannot stand Israel, and they make preparations for war. And then it says the people... We're called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now, this refers to Samuel's specific command to Saul when he anointed him king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 7, it says, this is Samuel talking. He says, and let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And we notice that there are two commands in there. One is a general command do as the occasion demands because God is with you. That means you have some uh, freedom of choice and decision in what you do. Do what seems best. You don't have the whole picture. You don't even know what are the outcome of your actions. But trust God, make a decision, and go with it, and God's going to be with you. But then we have this specific command, and it is very specific, go down before me to Gilgal. I'm not going to be there. You have to wait for me to come. You have to wait seven days. 
And he says, surely I will come down to you. I am coming, and I'm going to offer the sacrifices, and then I am going to tell you what to do. Now, Samuel is officially consecrated to the Lord to be a priest. He is the guy that makes the sacrifices. And the sacrifice is not worth anything unless you have the guy who is consecrated by God to do it. And he says, you're supposed to wait seven days. You are not to do as the occasion demands. This isn't one of those things that God is saying, you know, go with what you feel best. These are specific commands from God to be obeyed. And this is the time for these commandments to be carried out. So verse 5, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So the Philistines show up for war, and they are truly fearsome. Now you might notice a note in some of your Bibles, 30,000 chariots might be a little much. And some manuscripts have 3,000. And if so, that would agree with 6,000 horsemen as it would take two people to drive a chariot, one to drive the horses and the other one to use the advantage of the chariot, which is mobility and gravity. You're always swinging down from a chariot, and that lends force to your blow. Anybody you face on foot has to slice up to get at you. And that's harder. So you've got mobility, and you've got gravity, and that made the chariot like a tank. And you get, let's say, 3,000 of these coming at you. That is overwhelming. So overwhelming. And notice the number of the people is like sand on the seashore. That means uncountable. It means a lot. Obviously, it wasn't like sand on the seashore. How many were the Philistines? Two billion? It wasn't quite like that, but it was enough so that everybody freaks out. And they start defecting, deserting. And they hide where they can, and some of them just split over the river and get lost. And Saul is having a hard time waiting in Gilgal. Verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, 
bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So here's the situation. This is, this is pressure. And the pressure is mounting because the people are defecting. And here is Saul waiting out the seven days, and finally they get to day seven. Now, the Hebrew day begins at evening. So it gets toward evening. No sign of Samuel. Okay, we'll post a watch, but all night long, no Samuel. And now it's getting to daybreak. Nothing. And everybody's getting nervous, and some people are making the decision, I'm out of here. This is too close for my comfort. And, they, and, and they're leaving. And Saul is watching all this. And now it's past noon. And now it's getting into afternoon. No Samuel. And finally, Saul is done waiting. And he's going to do what Samuel ought to be doing, because he's not here. And so he grabs the sacrifices, and he starts it. Now, there's two of them. Have you noticed? The burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he only offered one of them. And then Samuel shows up. And he says, what have you done? And Saul justifies himself. That means he tries to prove that what he did, did was reasonable and just and right. He saw that the people were scattering. And the, the tense of the verb says that he kept on seeing. This is what he was seeing. And he was watching. And he was taking note of it. And he saw and kept on seeing. This was weighing on his mind. I'm being deserted. And I think the corollary to that thought is, I can't fight without soldiers. I am bleeding soldiers. I'm hemorrhaging here. So, as they split, the pressure increases. I'm seeing this. And then he says, you didn't come at the appointed time. You were late, and I was on my own. So it's partly their fault. It's partly Samuel's fault. But it's also partly the Philistines' fault. Because... 
He says in verse 12, Then I said, The Philistines will now come down at me in Gilgal. That word there means I kept on saying. You know how you sort of get into a a loop and you sort of repeat the same mantra over and over? They're going to come down on me. 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 You know what that means? I'm dead. And it's another way of saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then he says, I have not made supplication to the Lord. That's not quite what that word means. Literally, it means I have not yet appeased the Lord. And when you appease somebody, it means that you calm them down from being angry and you get them on your side. So it's probably pretty natural for Saul to think, you know what? How can I be in this situation if God is with me? How could God let this happen? Why is he letting all the guys run away? How come Samuel wasn't here? Look at all these guys. I'm about to die. How can God do this to me? He must be angry. I got to get him on my side. I need him on my side. And so he says, I forced myself to do this. And what he means is there was no other way. I had to do this. And that's why I was right to do this. But look at what Samuel says in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual, Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Verse 14. 
Now, you have done foolishly doesn't sound as bad as it could have sounded. But I was reading um, a set of books that I have. They're, they're published by the United Bible Society, translator handbooks. And they publish them so that they are a language help for people translating the Bible into non-Western languages. And it helps them to get a sense of the force of the language, so it helps them in their translation. It's really interesting to read. And the guy said, you know, you've done foolishly does not mean the same thing in English as that was stupid. But he says you could really more translate it like that. So Saul comes out to Samuel and says, hi. And Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul explains. And Samuel goes, that was stupid. Now, in Saul's mind, it's all worked out. It was reasonable. I had to do this. And Samuel listens to that and says, what? That was unnecessary. That's ridiculous. Now, you know, Samuel is coming from God's point of view, right? So if there's ever a conflict between you and God, guess who's right? And guess who's wrong? Good. We know now. Now, here's how we know that Saul is wrong. Because Samuel's on time. He said, surely I will come to you. Now, you know who Samuel is? He is the guy that has spoken the word of the Lord since he was a kid. And every single word that comes out of his mouth in the name of the Lord happens. And he said, surely I will come to you. And you know what that means? He's going to come. Now, I can imagine Saul watching his men bleed, looking at the camp of the Philistines, thinking, well, you know what? Somebody mugged Samuel. Samuel got a flat tire. Samuel hit a tree. You know, a piano fell on him. All those things are possible. That would stop me. That would stop you. Unforeseen difficulties that nobody could have predicted. And that's what happens, right? But see, when you're talking about God, God knew the Philistines would be there. He knew that Saul would be having a hard time. He knew that Samuel was going to get there, and he planned for Samuel to get there, and he did get there. Now, Samuel's an old guy. How fast do you think he's going? Well, the old guy made it because God said he would. So, you know, Saul missed it by minutes. How long does it take to offer a burnt offering? Somebody's already killed the sacrifice. You just put it up on the altar and set fire to it. And then Samuel shows up. It's like minutes, minutes. If he had just waited a few more minutes, this would have ended completely different. Does everybody get that? He was just about there. 
And Samuel says, you know what? The Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now it's not going to be. And the reason for that is this. In order for your kingdom to last forever, you have to do what God says. And what God says is successful. It will work because God says so. Like when he says light, there's light. And when God says do this, it works because it's God. Doesn't matter how many Philistines are out there. Doesn't matter that you don't have any weapons. It doesn't matter if you only got 600 men. Remember, that's twice as many men as Gideon had. And they didn't have swords or spears. In fact, you remember when Samuel had the entire nation there. And they're just repenting and coming to the Lord. And the Philistines are attacking And they say to Samuel, pray for us. And Samuel prays, and God thunders. And it freaks the Philistines out. They run after them, and they drive them back, and they beat them up. No weapons. Do they need a lot of guys? Do they need weapons? Do they need anything? Yes, they need God. They got God. So, the problem is you have to do what God says. Now, if you don't do what God says, then you're temporary. Because you're doing what you could think up, or somebody else could think up. But that's not God. So, you have to do what God says. And in order to do what God says, you have to believe him. You can't hear that and go, oh, that's not going to work. That's a dumb idea. Because again, he's God and you're not. So when you have a difference of opinion, who's right? God is right. Even if it's stupid to your mind, guess what? It's going to work. I experienced this when I used to play in a Christian rock band. And the leader of the band was an amazing guy. And he really did hear what God was saying. And he would say, we're going to do this. And I would say, that's stupid. That's not going to work. But I went along with him, and guess what? It worked. And I go, wow. I didn't think it was going to work, but it worked. And then he would say something else. And I would go, that's not going to work. Oh, well, I'll just go with him anyway. And then it would work. And I learned, okay, it's going to sound stupid, doesn't matter. It's going to work. And you know, the very same thing happened with uh, a couple that we knew that worked in Germany. And again, a fellow was working with them, and his parents were in the States. And they sort of helped this couple get established in Germany. And my friend Nick, he would say, what's going to happen? And, and the fellow's parents weren't believers. And they would listen to that and say, that's not going to work. And then it would happen. And they go, wow, that's weird. But it would keep on happening. And it got to the point where they weren't believers, but they said, anything he says, it's going to happen. And they were so enthused about that 
Because it wasn't coincidence. It kept on happening. And because it kept on happening, they go, Whoa, there is a God. (laughs) And it's amazing. All right? You got to do what God says. Now, if you have a disagreement with God and you basically outvote the Trinity and say, no, we're not going to do that, guess what? Your kingdom cannot last forever. You're going to do something desperate and temporary and pasta vizula. It doesn't work and you're temporary. So we got a problem here. And Samuel says, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Now what that means is, like-minded, think in the same direction. So that when God says, do this, the guy says, yeah, I'm with you. And if God says, do this, then the guy says, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, got it. So can two walk together unless they're agreed? So God says, I've already picked another guy. And this guy agrees with me. We're together. We think alike. So it's going to work out. This man is going to obey the Lord because... He believes the Lord. And then Samuel leaves. Is that not terrifying? Samuel says, okay, I got to go. And Israel is in a desperate situation. He's got 600 guys. That's it. And three bands of shock troops have gone out from the Philistines. And what they do is they go out riding on horses, and they're just going to Freak everybody out. Lightning raids that demoralizes the nation. And it's hard to fight back when you're freaked out. And then nobody's got any weapons. And the Philistines have always been careful to keep all the technology to themselves. And when you have to get your farm implements sharpened, it costs a fortune. So nobody's got any weapons except Saul and Jonathan. Now, is this not truly bleak? Doesn't this look like Israel is going to get wiped out? Yes, it does, except for chapter 14. And it's one of the more hilarious chapters in the Bible, if you think about it, because God is going to do his thing. He's just not going to do it with Saul. You know, God is never, like, stuck. He, he doesn't say, I got a guy in control that doesn't listen to me. What am I going to do? Michael, my hands are tied. I mean, I tell you, what am I going to do? No, he just says, well, going to keep rolling. And I'll find my guy. And we'll just keep rolling. And that's fabulous about God. But we have to leave it here today. Now, tune in next week. It's going to be good. The principle for this is in order to believe or to obey God, you got to believe him. 
It's in Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the first thing is you have to believe that God is. He's always been there, and he always will be. He created everything, and he sustains everything. That's what you have to know about God. But then you have to believe that God is good on top of that. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you come to him, he will meet with you, and he will reward you. So he's good. He is the eternally blessed God, and then he can give you his blessedness. This is how he works. All right? Here's how you believe God. You entrust your life to him. Your life is no longer yours to manage. It is his to manage. And he can do anything he wants with you. This is really important. Anything. Now, if he wants, he can save you miraculously. And if he calls you to suffer for his sake and to be faithful unto death, that's okay too. And that has to be okay with you. You have to understand that your life now belongs to him. You're his, and he is yours. Now, you'll read in Hebrews 11 about some people who through faith experience miracles, resurrection, armies turn to flight, you know, resist the power of fire. We can call that column A. Everybody likes column A, but then there's also column B. These are the guys that get sawn in half, they wear animal skins, and they live in caves and holes in the ground. Nobody I know wants to belong to column B. We all want column A. We want superpowers. But in God's economy, they're even. They're equal. Some guys get miracles. Other guys get sawn in half. You know? Like, Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, you're going to have 10 days of trial, and some of you are going to be thrown into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, not everybody has to go through that, but some people do. So you can't make it a rule that says, I get superpowers every single time, and I get a smooth level path to heaven, and nothing's going to happen to me. You can't say that, because you don't know what God has for you. But you do have to know where you're going when you die. Now, you know, Jesus lived what he preached. 
And in John 12, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, Jesus died doing the will of God. And God raised him from the dead. And this is our hope. He is the author and finisher and captain of our faith. You got to know where you're going when you die. And then it's okay. Does God want you to survive going through a furnace? And not burn? Great. But then, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not know what was going to happen. God didn't say, Psst, don't worry about it. It's not real. Nebuchadnezzar says, when the music plays, if you don't fall down and worship my image, I will burn you. And they said, don't worry, we're not going to bow down. And if you burn us, God is able to save us. But if not, we're still not going to bow down. So he says, okay, I'm going to burn you. Okay. Now they didn't know what was going to happen. They figured, okay. Nearer my God to thee. Here we come. But see, that's okay with them too. Do you get that? They weren't scratching and kicking and saying, no, no, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Because see, they knew where they were going to go. All right. I'm going to see God right now. Get out of my way. So it's okay with them. And then they did see God. What do you know? Four of them in the furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, come out. And they go, do I have to? But see, they didn't have any guarantees. They didn't know. All they said was, if I die, I die. And you know, this goes all the way through the Bible. All the way through the Bible. Esther has to go in and ask the king to save her and her people. He hasn't called for her in a month. If he doesn't hold out the golden scepter to her, they're going to take her and kill her on the spot. And finally she says, you know what? If I die, I die. How about God promised Abraham a son? And then waits for 25 years until his body is as good as dead. And then God gives him a son. See? Okay, give me a promise. If I die, I die. Abraham knew where he was going. Now, this is the amazing thing about entrusting your life to God and waiting for him 
it's always going to look like you're going to die. It's always going to look like you're going to die. This is stupid. You're going to die. And see, that's the biggest reason to disobey God. Do you know that if you just disobeyed God, you could live? Well, that's stupid. Because if I die obeying God, then I win. My very next sight is going to be the face of God. So it's stupid if I disobey God. Everybody get that? There is no reasonable reason to disobey God. Every disobedience is stupid. 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 And the amazing thing is, is you say, okay, I am going to trust God if it kills me. And then you don't die. You get a miracle. Do you know when you get a miracle? Is when you need one, not when you don't need one. So if Saul had waited 15 more minutes, God would have done a miracle with 600 guys and no weapons. But we'll never see it now. Because his nerve broke. And he went into despair, and he said, if I don't save myself, I'm going to die. All right. So, when you don't entrust your life to God, you have to protect yourself. And you're going to do desperate things, and they're not going to work. And really, that all comes from the devil. That's why I read that scripture in Hebrews 2 where it talks about that through death, Jesus might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The bondage of I can't obey God because if I obey God, I'm going to die. And I'm desperate, so I have to keep myself alive at all costs. Well, that's it. You're stuck. You need to know where you're going when you die. Now, Paul was in prison, and he knew he wasn't going to come out. This is Second Timothy, by the way, that we're studying on Friday nights. Exceedingly interesting. Paul knew he was going to die. He wasn't going to get a miraculous freedom. The angel of the Lord was not going to come down, make everybody sleep, open the door, and lead them out. It wasn't going to happen. He was going to die this time, and he knew it. And he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, what did Paul commit to him? Himself. He says, here I am. No deals. Do with me whatever you want. You want to save me miraculously? 
I'm into that. But if I die, I die. And he says, I know him. He's going to keep me. So Paul could be faithful unto death, not be ashamed, because he knew Jesus. And see, you know, need to know Jesus better and better. This is the great need of your life. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So have you entrusted your life to Jesus? Have you committed the care of your life into his hand? Because then you can obey God and see miracles and also know where you go when you die. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are greater than death. Thank you that you have overcome death, that you have abolished death. So we don't have to freak out like people who don't have a God. We thank you that you said, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. There's no one greater. But still, we're afraid to die. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart and see Jesus, who was really dead, came back to life. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to you except through Jesus. We're so glad for that. We don't want to live in fear. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. We don't know what's going to happen elsewhere. Everything is absolutely uncertain. Only in you is there confidence and peace. And we praise you and thank you for that. This morning we want to commit our lives into your hand. Not be afraid anymore. Help us to know you as you really are. That's eternal life. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.